So we are starting our Easter series here in Luke. Um, We've titled this A King for the Lost. And what we're going to see is here today the why behind the who and the what of Jesus. So next week, we'll find out who is this Jesus. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, we'll find out who is he. Well, he's Hosanna. We just sung it. He's the king. He's arrived. And then the following week, we'll see his death and resurrection, what he did uh, on our behalf. But this week, we're going to look at the why. Why did Jesus come? And so the title of this message is going to be The King's Mission. The King's Mission. Let me pause real quick. I'm going to ask us to pray one more time, just as we open God's word, that we would see it. I'm sure that there's a song ringing in your head right now. I'm going to ask you to pause that song, press pause on it, and uh, let's read God's word and see what he has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would open up our eyes to your word. Open up our eyes, that we would see Jesus. And Spirit, I ask that we would receive the grace of a transformed heart as a result of looking at your word and taking it seriously this morning. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So what do you do when you lose something? Something's gone, like I know where I put it, but it is gone. Do you just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, well, on to the next one, I'll just go buy another one, whatever it is. Or or do you retrace your steps to every last step you took in the house or in the store, and you look diligently for what it is that you lost? Um, You're probably sitting there thinking, well, what is it that I have lost? I, I need to know that before I know how diligently I'm going to search, right? Maybe um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's an AirPod uh, because those things are so small and they fall out and that left AirPod is gone again. All the millennials are, you know, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know. I, maybe other people use the stringed ones still. <laughs> I don't know, whatever those are called. Um, or, or maybe, uh, I know for me, I have a writing tablet and the pen for that tablet, the tablet won't work unless I have that pen. And whenever that pen is not attached to the tablet, I freak out. Like that, that is like, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to use this anymore. Or uh, I, I also think of, uh, of my wife who this week, um, my, our son, our one-year-old son loves to get her makeup bottles, you know, and just run away with them. And they're, they're not there when she needs them. And so, you know, she has little, you know, like black bottles of makeup. And, um, you know, she this week just went into the bathroom, opened up the toilet, was about to sit down and realized, oh, I need to flush the toilet. Took a closer look. Our son had dropped her makeup bottle in the toilet. Uh, so she had to fish that out. God bless her. She wasn't spending that money again, she, and, and we were not getting a new toilet. So <laughs> what is it that you do when you lose something? I know it, it, it depends on the value of the item that you lost, right? Maybe it's, there, there's a personal value or a sentimental value, or, or maybe there's an intrinsic value of that is really expensive and that has a lot, it's worth a lot of money. 
it could be a personal value thing. I was talking to John this week and he said with disc golf, uh, apparently you throw a disc and if it goes on the other side of the road, you don't just leave it. <laughs> Go get it, I don't know. I've never played disc golf, so. Now in real golf, if I hit a shot and I have to yell four, I'm gonna drive my cart over there, maybe look for five seconds before I pull another one out of the bag and drop it. You know, I'm moving on from that ball. Now, if that ball, though, had a signature of Tiger Woods on it, I'd probably search the next couple days, uh, weeks for it, right? So it depends on the value of that item, uh, sentimental value or intrinsic value, and then we'll get into our text. Uh, I, I remember my, uh, growing up, um, one time we were on our way to an event, and my mom looked down on the way to the event at her hands and realized that the sparkly glow was not there on her wedding ring. She had lost the diamond. And so she, the whole family obviously started scurrying around the car. We're, we're looking under every mat, every chair. Um, my dad whips the car around to go back home to see if we can find this lost diamond. We search everywhere diligently because of the sentimental value, but also the intrinsic value of this diamond. And so we are looking like crazy. My mom ends up retracing her steps well enough to find it, and they were able to replace it. So the effort put into the mission is equal to the value of the item that's lost. And that's where we find ourselves today. Jesus says in verse 10, I've come to seek and to save the lost. So let's figure out what, what does this story have to do with that? And I think what we'll see is that King Jesus, his effort, his goal, his mission is to seek and save the straying sinner because of the value that he places on them. Jesus came to seek and save the straying sinner because of the value that he places on them. And so this brings us to the first of the king's mission this morning, and that is this, to seek the straying. So we're gonna piece apart that first sentence a little bit, and the first point this morning is to seek the straying. The king's mission was to seek the straying. So what, where, where do we see that? Let's look down um, and starting in verse one and two. We see a little description of Zacchaeus. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Zacchaeus was exorbitantly wealthy. This description of him as a chief tax collector would have meant not only that he went around collecting taxes, but he was the head, and whatever was left over to skim off the top, he was taking it. He was exorbitantly wealthy, wearing probably the noblest of robes. Um, and he goes into the crowd. Uh, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, it says in verse three, he could not. And so he climbed this tree. And so in order to maybe approach an awkward situation with some people that he had just defrauded, it's like, I'm, just not, I'm not gonna you know, weasel my way into the crowd. I'm gonna stay around back. Uh, in order to understand the gravity of this description of Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector and rich, we have to understand how Luke has been setting Jesus up to find those who are lost, outcast, and straying. So within Luke, broadly, I know we're jumping in in chapter 19. That means that there's 
18 chapters previously uh, in the book of Luke. And what Luke does is describe Jesus as someone who is pursuing the lost. And we're seeing that culminate in our text today. But we see in Luke a strong emphasis on the lost, the outcasts of society, the straying. These are general categories that include more specific groups like the poor, women, and a title given to sinners, which is a uh, kind of colloquial term at this time given to those who didn't you know, subscribe to the dominant religious norms of the day or cultural norms of the day. And so they were called sinners because they transgressed. They were kind of traitors. Zacchaeus is called a sinner in verse seven. We read, both the rich and the poor are obviously two extremes on the socioeconomic spectrum, and Jesus engages with both over and over again by showing concern to the poor and caution to the rich. He shows concern for the poor and caution to the rich. Within Luke, the poor, this title, the poor, is actually a superheading for other smaller groups that include the blind, crippled, lame, lepers, and the deaf, all of whom would have been groups of people that would have had no place to work in society. So they would have been poor. The outcasts of society are lost and staying uh, because, and, and stay there, are uh, stay lost religiously because the religious elite would not go to them to minister to them. And so Jesus finds a ready audience when he approaches the poor, the outcast, the stranger. In society, though, they were ignored and forgotten. So when Jesus teaches both the poor and the rich, he considers both the economic realities and the spiritual realities of what's going on in the person's life that he's approaching. So listen to what one former pastor uh, said about the, who the poor and the rich are as described in Luke. He says, this is Bob Kara, he says, the poor are those who depend on God and are part of his kingdom in addition to being economically deficient. Similarly, the rich are not simply those with money, but those who oppress the poor. So they were given even another layer. It's not just an economical reality, but it's a spiritual reality that this money hunger actually drove those who were rich. Now, not saying that everybody who had wealth could have been described by this, but most were. And so, and so Jesus uh, defines the poor as, and Luke especially sets up the poor as those who depend on God and are economically deficient, and the rich are those who oppress the poor but are economically fine. So Luke gives pictures of Jesus' mission to seek and to save the outcast many times leading up to Zacchaeus. And so let's do a quick five-minute flyover of how Luke is setting Jesus up to be this one with a heart for the lost. Luke 4, 18 through 21 says this. Um, Jesus actually, this is his first official sermon, and he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See how many titles there are given to different groups of people in here that Jesus would have 
seen as those who are lost, those who are outcast, those who are straying, both religiously and culturally. And so Jesus goes on in Luke to proclaim good news, liberty, and jubilee in his many miracles and teachings. Miracles and teachings. Miracles and teachings. I'm not just stuttering over that. These are, these are kind of back and forth plays that we see throughout the book of Luke. Jesus teaches something, he does a miracle. He teaches something, he does a miracle. In chapters four through six, we're not gonna look at all of these, but again, flyover, five-minute flyover. Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man, a leper, a paralytic, and a man who had a withered right hand. And then he teaches in the Sermon on the Plains, which is similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's Luke's account of it. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. A couple verses later, he contrasts this. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Chapters eight and nine, Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man, a poor and diseased woman. He resurrects a teenage girl and heals a demon-oppressed boy. Again, we're flying over. In chapter 12, Jesus teaches a parable about a greedy farmer, and Jesus warns us to the allure of wealth. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Maybe you're here this morning and you needed to hear that because you've been centering your life around your possessions or around gathering possessions. While this is not the point of the sermon, maybe you need to hear that it's not about whether you have possessions, but do your possessions have you? What is the direction of your heart? In chapter 17, moving on, after Jesus heals 10 lepers, one of which came to faith in him, came back worshiping him, Jesus teaches that the kingdom would be unlike what their expectations anticipated. He says in Luke 17, 20, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus says something similar in the Gospel of John. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus introduces a kingdom as the king of that kingdom, introduces a kingdom that cannot be favorably compared to the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of Jesus is much better. The kingdoms of this world proclaim good news to those who are already free, to the socially acceptable, proclaims liberty to those who will pledge allegiance to their king or their flag or their ideals or their economic institutions and so on. Jesus, the king of this kingdom's mission is to seek the lost, the outcasts, the straying, those who are not leaning on their own power to live. So that's chapter 17. Then in chapter 18, Jesus teaches a parable contrasting a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee's pride exposes his perceived spiritual ability. 
He boasts about himself to be part of this spiritual elite, while the tax collector believed himself to be spiritually impoverished. He believed himself to be bankrupt, spiritually unsavable and lost. Yet he begged for mercy. Which one do you most identify with? His repentance, this tax collector's repentance of leaning, not, uh, uh, no longer wanting to lean on his own power to live was accepted and the tax collector was found. He was lost, but he had been found while the Pharisee remained straying and lost. After that parable, a, a real life example of the gospel being taught to a rich person just comes full into view. Now, remember what Kara said earlier, that the rich are simply those with, are not simply those with money, but those who oppress the poor. So the rich ruler shows up. His life consists in an abundance of possessions and does not want to give them up to follow Jesus. And Jesus has some really interesting things to say to following this encounter. He says in verse 25 of chapter 18, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you may be sitting there thinking, wait, Casey, you've been really harping on the rich. Like, can't they, can't they come to faith as well? Uh, can't there be wealthy Christians? Aren't they in some ways outcasts as well? People look at them a little strange. The, remember the lifestyle of the rich that Luke describes as incompatible with that of a follower of Jesus. Just remember that a, a Christian who lives according to God's law, God's character, follows a Micah 6-8 lifestyle, which says he has told you, O man, what is good, and he does, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The people who heard Jesus teach this basically asked him the same question in verse 26. They say, well then, if this man can't be saved, then who can be saved? And look what Jesus says. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And in this context, this is the last teaching before we meet Zacchaeus. In this context of the struggle between the in crowd and the outcast, the poor and the rich, the spiritually able and the spiritually bankrupt, and the seeming impossibility of the rich ever being welcomed into the new kingdom, we find a story of a short, rich, tax-collecting oppressor called Zacchaeus. Now, having this context hopefully helps us realize that Zacchaeus is not a one-off encounter Jesus has been on the mission of gathering those who will not bow the lead in allegiance to their culture, country, or kingdom that they find themselves in, but those who will swear allegiance to King Jesus. Those who are lost. Those who are so lost that they're kind of disoriented in this world. And here, that Jesus is a better king, a better savior than cultural acceptance or economic prosperity, those are who Jesus is already seeking. Jesus said in verse 10, Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus never fails at his mission. 
Because the king who seeks the straying never fails, what does he do when he finds them? He rescues them. He rescues them. How does he rescue them? Well, this takes us to the second mission of King Jesus this morning, and that is this. Save the sinner. Mission of the king was, is to save the sinner. First of all, it was to seek the straying, and second, it's to save the sinner. Look down in verses six through seven with me. Jesus tells us, or Luke tells us, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to, in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. First, notice the giddy excitement by Zacchaeus here. His response shows maybe the beginnings of a belief in who Jesus is, who Jesus has said he is. But you see the surprise that such a revered religious, Jewish religious leader would, would take notice of him. Like we've already mentioned, sinner is a title given to those whose life or belief do not line up with normal Jewish living. So we're talking, you know, put yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew, someone who didn't uh, conform to what you knew life was to be like. They were a traitor of sorts. E even worse, we see that Zacchaeus, though he was a Jew, he was a traitor to his own people. He oppressed Jews on behalf of the Romans. Part of the Jewish experience was one of captivity. We experienced captivity. For 400 years, they had experienced captivity to different empires. And here, Zacchaeus sides with the overlords. Zacchaeus was someone who abandoned his people and actually inflicted more suffering on his people. If you remember the story of Moses, he was raised in Pharaoh's house, but when he noticed injustice by the overlords over his people, he ran to their help, ran to their aid. Here we see Zacchaeus do the opposite. This is why this would have been such a great offense. You're the opposite of a Moses. You're not running to the, our aid. You're actually abandoning us and betraying us. And so he was in a sense, a cultural sinner, that he didn't identify with what it would have been like to be a Jew. Not only though he was a cultural sinner, he was a religious sinner. Theologically, he was a sinner. In his accumulating of exorbitant wealth, he stole, which is a violation of the Eighth Commandment, and he defrauded many of his own people would have been a violation probably of the ninth commandment, maybe even the tenth, that he lied and he coveted other people's wealth. He was a swindler and a cheat. And Jesus goes to eat with this man, this public enemy number one. The obvious scoff tells the degree of the distaste of, that the people had for Zacchaeus, possibly a mark of growing distrust in Jesus that he would identify with him. At this time and in this culture, the onlookers would have considered being a guest to a known criminal as being uh, basically implicated in that person's crime. People witnessing this interaction respond with a statement, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's not an observation. That is a condemnation. Both of Zacchaeus, because he's the sinner in this, but also Jesus, 
for associating with Zacchaeus. So Jesus then goes to Zacchaeus' house. He shares a meal together, no doubt while Jesus is teaching during the meal. And this is where we pick off in verse, or pick up in verse eight. Look there with me. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore full fourfold. Jesus saves the sinner here, but he doesn't just save every sinner. Jesus saves the contrite, those who repent. He does not save those like the rich young ruler. He does not save people who have a lot of really good moral stuff to show to him, hoping that he'll save them. He doesn't save people because of their impressive or maybe even unimpressive status in order to gain favor with God. Jesus saves people who see their morality and see their status like Paul does in Philippians 3, where he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, through my good moral stuff or my status, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Zacchaeus' faith is vindicated then in his works. He responds in his new faith to administer justice in two ways. One, he redistributes his wealth. The gain that he has, he gives half to the poor. And second, he does restitution with those who he has wronged. The outworking of his faith was to recognize the vast imbalance between his social and economic status and those Jesus had been caring for throughout his ministry. And he literally does the opposite of the rich ruler. The rich ruler who said, Jesus said, sell all your goods, come and follow me. He said, I can't sell all my goods. Zacchaeus says, give it all away. I don't care. I've got Jesus in my house. I want to follow him. Oh, I was talking with Pastor Drew and John this week, and they brought to my attention that the disciples probably thought that the rich ruler was more savable than Zacchaeus. Because the rich ruler comes and he says, all of these, things, these good things I've done, Jesus, look at these. Disciples probably really impressed, like, Whoa. Jesus, this could be a really good get for us in our movement. The rich young ruler, his possessions had him. And here Zacchaeus says, I've wronged people. I'm wrong. I want to gain Christ. And so he saves them. The rich ruler had probably more moral stuff than Zacchaeus did, but Jesus doesn't save people because of their good behavior. He saves them because of his perfect life and then commissions them to care for others like he did. Look back down at verses nine and 10. And Jesus told or said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Pause. You remember just a chapter earlier, rich man, just, just as likely for a rich man to, to enter the kingdom of heaven, 
than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus is actually saying here, today salvation has come to this house. The camel has gone through the eye of a needle. Look at it. It's there. Zacchaeus, you've done it. You've left your possessions aside. The things of this world have fled it away. And you prize Jesus. You prize me. Zacchaeus recognized, I'm lost without you, Jesus. I don't want to be lost anymore. Reading on verse 10, well, since he also is a son of Abraham, going on in verse 9, then in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This message is what Luke has been building to throughout his entire gospel. The mission of King Jesus was to seek and save straying sinners. This is what the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, or the lost son teach us. And if you haven't read those recently, go back to Luke 14 through 16 and read those. They are rich. This is the truth that Jesus taught in those parables. To be lost is to be destined to continue in a state of lostness forever. But Jesus came to seek out lost people and rescue them from their lostness by giving them new eyes to see. Now, stay with me. With new eyes, we come to our third and final point this morning, that the greatest need of the lost is this. The greatest need of the straying sinner is to see the Savior. It's to see the Savior. We just finished in verse 10, but we're going to go back to verse 3. Before we do that, Pastor Justin has uh, said a couple different times that church is not an in-person podcast. I think that's funny and so accurate. And so many times we want it to be. Seems like in the tree, Zacchaeus actually wanted to be a spectator. But instead, this straying sinner is about to see and to be seen by the Savior. So let's go back to where we see Zacchaeus believe and be changed. Let's look in verse three. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus does everything he can to see Jesus. He was blocked by the crowd due to his stature, which is nothing really to laugh about. If you believe that God is sovereign, he created Zacchaeus to be that height so that at that day in Jericho, he would find a tree to climb in so that Jesus could look at him. Like, God is sovereign in things that you may view as like a little odd about yourself. He's sovereign in that. He wants you to have that. And so, we see Zacchaeus do everything he can. He's blocked by the crowd and, and he goes to the tree, climbs the tree because he wants to see Jesus and Jesus would find him there. He was blocked by the crowd and could not find a reasonable position uh, with which to see Jesus. So he, so he climbs a tree, a sycamore tree, probably a, a location uh, de- detail there so that we know this is Jericho. And the same 
he was expecting to maybe get a glimpse of Jesus and then go back home the same rich, short, tax-collecting oppressor that he was when he woke up that morning. Let's just put ourselves in the tree with Zacchaeus. What was he thinking at this moment? Oh, oh no, Jesus stopped. Why did he stop? Oh no. He's looking around. Oh no, I hope he doesn't see me. How embarrassing. How embarrassing if he sees me. Oh, will he laugh? Will he condemn me? Jesus walking by looked up and saw Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus' world was changed forever. The compassion in Jesus' eyes grabbed Zacchaeus' affection, his curiosity, his excitement. The loving acceptance of Jesus' gaze let Zacchaeus know that he was wanted for once. The heart of Jesus was set on finding Zacchaeus before he even took one step into Jericho that day. Zacchaeus' previous inclinations that he was unlovable, despised, rejected, maybe even unsavable, dissolved in a moment. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. This is what the word of God does. It's living and active. It divides between thoughts and intentions of your heart. Do everything you can to see Jesus. Do everything you can to see Jesus in Bible reading, in the music that you get to sing along to, in prayer time. Look to find Jesus, see Jesus in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. I see Jesus in you in this way. It's a really good thing to say. Let them know. Good books, creation, nature, maybe the park. Come on out once the weather gets good, finally. And Look for Jesus. Receive those things and pray for a transformation of your heart as you see and love Jesus. Jesus saw Zacchaeus and then he spoke to him. Let's see what he says in verse five. Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Jesus saw Zacchaeus and spoke words of acceptance to him. Zacchaeus, I don't, I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you think you are. I don't view you like that. Jesus had sought Zacchaeus and he saved Zacchaeus. Jesus, love this. I love this hymn. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. He sought me when I was a stranger. Have you ever identified as a stranger before? As a lost person? Do you identify? The church now carries on the mission of her king. The church now seeks to save, seeks to save the straying sinner. Now we don't save the straying sinner, we point them to Jesus. Look at Jesus. See Jesus, he's better. I'm gonna fail you. However, I do want you to see Jesus in my actions and my words. I would love for you to look at my life and say, man, something's different there. You're really accepting when other people haven't been. Oh, may 
people see Jesus. May we take on the mission of our king, the king's mission to seek and save the straying sinner because of the value that he places on them. May you and I seek to save the straying sinner, so pointing them to Jesus because of the value that Jesus and hopefully you have on that person. Value other people. As we conclude, let's be reminded of the point of this passage, that Jesus came to seek the stray and save the straying sinner. How does he do that? By making the impossible possible. Remember Luke 18, 26. What is impossible with man is possible with God. I, I don't know what you're going through that you need to hear that right now. But I know as I was studying this this week, um, this hits me with what's going on in my life right now. Um, I, can't, I can't share very, very many details, if any, but I wanna share with you, my church, that there, there has been times in my heart in the last two weeks where I have questioned whether it's possible for Jesus to save someone. I thought whether something was impossible for God, whether someone was too impossible for God. I've been scared for the soul of someone that I love. That person used me, abandoned me, and sometimes I wonder if things will ever get resolved. Sometimes I really wonder if that person will ever actually experientially and truly be reconciled to God, truly see Jesus. What is impossible with man is possible with God. If the likelihood of a rich person to enter the kingdom of God is as likely as a camel going through the eye of a needle, that leaves the door open for anyone, anyone that you see, that you may think, man, they are really unsavable. You didn't hear what they did last weekend. Maybe, maybe you wonder about yourself. If you do, man, just implore you, do whatever you can to see Jesus. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, coworker, maybe even your boss. You need to be reminded that what is impossible with man is possible with God. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So do whatever you can to see Jesus. Do whatever you can to see Jesus. Do whatever you can to see Jesus. And while you're at it, bring some others with you. Bring some others with you. Because Jesus is a king for the lost. Let's pray. Father, may we never view someone who has breath in their lungs as so unsavable, so lost, that there is no way that Jesus would ever be able to save them. May there be not one person here who would say about themselves, I have done too much, I am too far gone, you don't know what I did, you don't know what I've done, you don't know what I've said to God. In the disorientation of being lost, we say stupid things sometimes. And Jesus, you seek us out anyway. 
You came to seek and to save the straying sinner because of the value that you have on us. Father, grow that value in us. May we see the truths that we see here in Zacchaeus that Jesus teaches to us. And may we be changed by it. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.